welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. This podcast is powered by Christianity Today and Kairos Partnerships. What's up, Bob? Hey, Doug. Good to see you. Good to see you too, man. Really good to see you. So, hey, I was, uh, I'm not one who's on Twitter all the time, uh, but I was on Twitter the other day, on Monday morning, actually, and, and I read the best tweet. I think it's the most honest, raw, and hopeful tweet that I've read on a Monday in years. It said, it's by a guy named Eric, and he said, my sermon kind of bombed today. Two years ago, I'd be a wreck. Today, I'm just eating pizza and chilling. Jesus changes people, not my well-crafted or not sermon. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, I thought to myself, dude, that's, that sounds really healthy. It is. It is. You know, that's, that's one of the things that we, uh, whenever I'm talking to pastors or doing any kind of training or things, wh- one of the things we really focus on is letting go of outcomes. I think there's, there's such a difference between like, um, yeah, we should try our best, but we can't control how it lands. You know, and you've got to put the outcomes of everything you do, not just preaching, but everything in God's hands. And that sounds like a really healthy attitude to have on a Monday morning is like, I yeah, know. I didn't do great, but that's OK. Next week's coming. You know, it's like yeah. I, I hit a single. It wasn't a home run, but you know what? We're going to put together singles. We're going to put together doubles. God will bring the growth, you know? Yep. Yeah. I I just think that there's something about hearing pastors say things like that, that deeply encourages my soul, especially from the perspective of, yeah, that there's that pressure of, you know, I have to be as good as fill in the blank, whatever great preacher that you have up there. And what you don't understand is that they are, you know, they may be hired by their church to only do that. So literally their 40 hours a week might be to fix, you know, just to focus on the, the teaching or the sermon. Um, but I think too, it's that it's that grace to recognize that man, Jesus is up to stuff, even in my flaws, even in the weird places, even in the dumb things that I say. Which, speaking of, it did actually, <laughs> it did actually make me think of dumb things that I have said, or sermon bloopers, oh, or Sunday morning bloopers. And I, yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear all of yours or one of yours. I, I can start since I'm bringing it up, but um, I had this this great moment. Um, we applied for a Lilly grant for my sabbatical and, uh, we didn't get it. And, you know, so I, I, I still love the Lilly foundation, but I'm still ticked that we didn't get this thing. Um, but unbeknownst to me, there was a Sunday that, um, I was, my wife and I went, I helped with setup. I'm getting ready to preach and teach. And next thing you know, they, this woman in our church stands up and goes, Doug, uh, can you please come forward and mayor you come too? And they basically said, hey, we've got this, um, you know, we heard about this and we thought they don't know you. They don't know who you are. They don't know how much you've worked. So we as a church have got together and we're, we're going to bless you with some money for your sabbatical. And like, Bob, it was amazing. I mean, just the cool. generosity was unbelievable. And, the, and, and she's, you know, how do you feel? And, and the first words out of my mouth were, I feel like my pants have been blown off. And it was one of those moments where it's like, my wife, who is bawling, looks at me and goes, you mean socks, like loud. And like the microphone is in front of me and you can hear her saying the mic, you mean socks. Like, oh my gosh, my socks. I feel like my socks have been blown off. And it was one of those things where for, well, first of all, this is how great my church was for the next month and a half. It's like, I was just getting harassed about my pants being blown off. Um, but it was just one of those moments where I'm like, yeah, that is a blooper to not to end all bloopers, but 
definitely that a memorable moment for me. That is good. I like that. It reminds me, uh, there used to be, uh, for a while, it was a very hot app on the iPhone app store was, I won't, I won't mention the name of it, but basically it made it look like uh, you, you could blur out parts of pictures and it would make it look like you were trying to censor that picture. <laughs> uh, I think it was Jimmy Kimmel used to have a, a, a This Week in Unnecessary Censorship <laughs> where they would play a clip of somebody and they were just talking normally, but they would beep certain words and it was hilarious because it sounded like they were being yes. very inappropriate. Well, my co-pastor Dustin and I used to uh, get up to great stuff with that app and uh, just occasionally post pictures of each other preaching with like the bottom part of our bodies blurred out. So, <laughs> you know, it looked like I don't know what Dustin is, what he was thinking, uh, preaching about pants today. But you know, or, or this is I posted one myself. This is how I like to loosen up for preaching. Um, you can still find that's still out there somewhere. I should find it again. But yeah. Those are the kinds of things that I feel like we just miss so many times. We miss opportunities to laugh at to laugh at ourselves. Um, oh, and, yeah. and there always seems to be those weird moments within church where it's like, we just don't know what to do. Uh, I, I was a youth pastor for 10 years. And, you know, with every youth pastor, there, there has to be, I've yet to meet a youth pastor that doesn't have, there's a bit of showmanship in them, oh, right? Yeah. Right. Like, that's just yeah. like what youth pastors do. And so we had this large cross made for this stage. And I was, I was teaching on, um, I can't even remember what I was teaching on. But what I do remember is I bent down with a hammer to start nailing something to this cross and my pants split. Like, I kid you not, my pants split. And luckily, nobody saw. And I was, the angle where I was is I was far enough away from people and not facing them with my backside. But it was like the most humiliating horrifying thing ever. And I'm really glad that it was not on camera. But these things, ha I mean, they happen all the time, right? Like, they, they, they're, they're, there's all kinds of great things like this. So uh, I just remembered this. Um, <laughs> I, I once had a kind of a burnt orange v-neck shirt. And uh, there was a period in the, I don't know, it was probably mid, like 2010, 2009, somewhere in there, where V-necks were getting a little aggressive. And <laughs> this one was, it was, it was fairly aggressive. And the reason why I wore this shirt was because, Doug, this was literally the only item of clothing I had ever worn that a woman other than my wife had complimented me on. <laughs> I, was, I went to Starbucks and the, and the, and the barista mm -hmm. said, Oh, I like that shirt. And man, I wore the heck out of that shirt after that because I was like, I, 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 I was floating. I was like, you know, I, I you just, I'm not a guy that gets a lot of compliments on my looks. So uh, I would wear that shirt. And the problem was one day I wore it to preach forgetting that I also had to pin on a, a, a lapel mic. <laughs> and that thing started writing down, and I, I was super close to a wardrobe mishap in the middle of the <laughs> When I looked down and I realized, oh my gosh, guys, I'm really sorry. And I look up and I make eye contact with the parents, the very... Mm -hmm 
conservative uh, Korean parents of this gal in our church uh, who had questions about this church that she was going to anywhere that met in pubs and this club space and <laughs> thought we were, you know, weird. Uh, I just looked up and I made eye contact with her parents and I just said, I am so sorry. Uh, <laughs> and for the rest of the time, I had to like pull my shirt down and back. And I, and I just kept my hand there because uh, I didn't want anyone seeing, you know, the hardware or anything. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I feel, I feel like shirts like that should be in a onesie form because then at least yeah. you've got those snaps to like hold it in, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right, well... Yeah. Anyways, I feel like, you know, we're coming into Easter and it's probably good to yeah. give ourselves a little bit of grace. You know, it's okay yeah. if you wear that V-neck shirt that just, you know, exposes your navel or whatever. I mean, just go for it because the tomb is empty. <laughs> yeah, man, I, you know, I, I, I wonder, I sometimes, you know, pastors do get to have a lot of fun, but I almost feel like Sunday morning is probably the least fun day of a mm. pastor's week. You know, that's, that's mm. the, we've got our game faces on, everything is serious. And when things go wrong, we, it's really hard to laugh at them, at least mm. until maybe, you know, weeks and months later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the, yeah. the pressure that we put on, on ourselves, it's, it's too much. And we yeah. just have to remember, yeah, this is Jesus church. He loves it more than I do. Uh, he's got this, he's taking care yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well, it's always good to hang out with you, Bob. I'm really excited for the interview that we have, uh, that we both had to sit in on with Alan Noble and uh, yeah. the bio is going to come out here in just a few seconds after we're done talking. But man, we hope this encourages you um, today. We hope that there are moments that come to your mind that may be moments of shame that you actually can begin to laugh about because you know yeah. what? Some of this stuff that happens is pretty stinking funny. And I would just uh, encourage you to share that with someone and watch what happens. They're probably not horrified. They'll probably laugh. But we hope yeah. you guys have a great week. Dr. Alan Noble is the Associate Professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University. He's the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Christ and Pop Culture and an advisor for the AND campaign. He has written for the Atlantic, Vox, BuzzFeed, The Gospel Coalition, Christian Today, and First Thing. He is also the author of Disruptive Witness, and we found out later in the podcast that he is a SoundCloud rapper. So we hope you can look him up and listen to his music, but please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Alan Noble. Alan, thank you for joining us today. Uh, tell us a bit about yourself and your particular calling to the church. Oh, uh, I thought you said this wasn't gotcha journalism. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a great question. So I, I like to think I have for a very long time, I have thought of my particular concern. My calling is to help the church participate in culture in a uh, more godly, robust, um, intelligent, thoughtful, meaningful, righteous way, right? So for for a while, I was working, uh, um, not working because it wasn't really paid at first, at Christ and Pop Culture and doing cultural criticism, reviewing movies and cultural events and trying to help people interpret it in a way that I thought was actually meaningful and helpful and different, um, uh, specifically as opposed to 
um, a, a very sort of fundamentalist view of culture, which tended to be very negative and hostile, or a sort of um, progressive, and I'm not using either term in a derogatory way, but uh, in, in the sense of embracing culture without sort of discernment, right? So trying to track uh, um, path, um, pave this middle way. Um, and uh, so that's kind of been the, the idea. And uh, the fun thing about culture is it's really big. Right. So as a, a literature professor at Oklahoma Baptist University, I work with my students to do that, but I'm just focused on literature. And then in my writing, I tend to do sort of cultural analysis or cultural criticism. And sometimes that'll look like uh, the use of technology or broad cultural trends or politics in some of my writing. So um, that's that's kind of my wheelhouse. Yeah, I, I think there's so much about what what you do and especially i appreciate how you talked about how big culture is um and one of the things that i'm i'm interested in is you know you came out with this really great book you are not your own um and we'd love to chat about that a little bit and just kind of dip our toes into it and we realize that 25 to 30 minutes is not enough time to properly give towards it so this conversation is going to go off rails which i'm really excited about um <laughs> But I love how you begin your book with this beautiful metaphor and picture of a lion who is in a cage at the zoo, and you talk about zoocosis. Is, am I getting that right? Mm -hmm. um, and then you go on to make uh, this, this really unique comparison when you say, our anxiety stems from living in an environment that was not actually made for us, for humans as we truly are. Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, so just to kind of using that, that metaphor, um, I was initially inspired by the the bears that they have at Baylor University, which is where I got my PhD. They've got this beautiful, this beautiful habitat um, with a waterfall. It's got a little stream going through it. It's got these massive logs. They were constantly getting fresh fruits and vegetables and and meat. And uh, I was a grad student at the time, and um, my apartment was smaller than their habitat. <laughs> I did not get fresh fruits and meats and vegetables nearly as often. But what was remarkable was here, um, donors and students and all the people involved in this were extremely intentionally designing a habitat for these bears so that the bears would flourish. And in, in fact, some of the um, marketing, the press releases building up to this, the uh, opening of this habitat, they said, we want to create a bear's dream world. We want to create a habitat that is more like their natural habitat. So very intentionally saying, okay, what do we know about bears? The best science, the best experts, what do we know? How do we design something for them? And yet, when I would take my daughter uh, in her stroller, push her over there to just watch the bears, they would walk in circles endlessly for hours, all day long. And you could see a track in the ground of dirt uh, they had this lush green grass. I also didn't have a lawn. Um, and, and they would have, but they would just have this circle in it because they were walking all day long in circles. And it was very clear to any visitor, this animal is not well. There's something deeply unwell about this. This is a, a psychosis. This is a, a neurosis. This is some illness, a mental illness. And uh, the name that's given for it, sort of the colloquial name, it's not the technical name, but it's useful, is zoocosis. So a, a psychosis and mental illness for those uh, animals who are uh, not domesticated, but they're caged and they're stuck there. Now, in doing this research, one of the things that struck me was uh, when I read how zoocosis is treated. 
The two main ways it's treated are um, enrichment activities. So like maybe a weighted ball or something they can play with. And the second thing is antidepressants. And when I read that, I thought, that's me. Wait, that's what society says to me when I'm not doing well. They say, you need to watch some Netflix or you need to exercise or you need some enrichment activity and you need some antidepressants. But just like the way the visitors viewed these bears, every time every visitor who would see this would recognize, wow, this is disordered. And yet they'd all just sort of shrug, including myself and say, well, what are you going to do? This is just the way things are. And so the idea, part of the idea behind the book is uh, making the argument that that contemporary West, at least in America, is similar. I'm not saying that we're we're caged in a zoo, but I do think that there is something analogous going on where we have very intentionally, sometimes with the best intentions, sometimes not so much, but always intentionally created a society, a habitat, an environment for human flourishing, which is what all societies try to do. A, a space for human flourishing. And yet, because I believe it was built with a wrong idea of what a human being is, we ended up setting up laws, institutions, values, aesthetics, morals, um, media, technology, all the things that make up our society, we've ended up creating them in a way that's distorted. And so it's actually quite natural and, and, and even appropriate that in such an environment, we feel uncomfortable. We feel like, I, I don't belong. This doesn't make sense. I feel degraded just by being in this environment. That's weird because it was made for me, but it wasn't at the same time. Um, and so that's when society steps in and says, well, maybe you need some, some ice cream and some antidepressants. Um, and that's not to say anything critical about antidepressants, because I think they absolutely have a valid use. Or ice cream, for that matter. I think it has a valid use <laughs> yes. as well. Um, but but when we have a societal-wide uh, mental health crisis, which I think we do, and we have, yeah. you know, that, then we have to ask, okay, th- this has appropriate uses, but maybe there's something underlying this that we're just not even talking about. Mm. And that's kind of the, what this book is trying to get. Yeah. Yeah. Alan, I wonder if I can kind of flip the question a little bit. Uh, Douglas Coupland in his book, uh, Life After God, he talks about society and the way that we build things. And he says, you know, if we were a bunch of cats, you'd walk down the street and all the buildings would have carpet on the outside because Uh that's what cats would want. You know, and he talks about uh, if we're a society of dogs, there'd be a lot more things to chew on and bones and things. And, and he asked the question, but he never really answers it. As we look around, as we walk around, what, what is our view of humans that this is the society, that this is the way that we've built things? Ouch. So you, you, I, I love that idea yeah. that you say that it, it, what we have now is not built for who we really are. I'm wondering, as you think about culture, yeah. like, who do we think we are? as opposed to who we actually are meant to be. And yeah. how, how do we discern that by looking at what we've built and what we do? Yeah, so um, the central argument of the book is that our society, uh, in our society, Christians and non-Christians tend to believe that they are fundamentally their own and belong to themselves. Now, I'm describing mm-hmm. individualism here, but I'm also arguing for something actually a little bit bigger and and larger than we typically think of when we think of individualism, because I almost want to say at a, um, uh, an ontological or an, an essential level, what it means to be a human being is to be radically alone, to, be radi- to radically belong to yourself. And um, f- 
from that principle, from that idea, being a person is belonging to yourself, we get all kinds of, of ramifications and implications and, and obligations. Um, what I talk about in the book are what I call responsibilities of self-belonging. So if it's true that we belong to ourselves, then um, what we would expect to see is a society, to answer your question, Bob, okay, what's at, looking at our society. So let's take a look at social media, right? What is but it's sort of at the heart of social media. At the heart of social media is the idea of projecting yourself out into the world. Now, if we are our own, then we have to craft our identities. We're the only ones who can define ourselves, and, and it's not optional. You, you've got to figure out who you are and project it out into the world. So what if we created, what if we intentionally designed systems, platforms, constantly evolving platforms that allow you increasing numbers of opportunities to project yourself out into the world, to announce to the world who you are, your name, your face, your image, your brand, your taste, all these things, your preferences, your political stance, all these things, right? And part of the goal there is to allow you to meet that responsibility. No one else can define you. You've got to do it on your own. That's freeing. It's liberating. That's how it's sold to us is as this freeing thing. But the flip side is, and most people acknowledge this, it's also a great burden because mm. when you need to have, create your own identity, you need constant external affirmation. And mm. other humans can never really affirm you enough. And so there's always this sense that I need to keep going. I need to keep going. I need to keep going. Um, so that's just one example. But um, the yeah. other sort of responsibilities I talk about are, are justification a sense of purpose or meaning in your life, um, values, meaning, and uh, belonging, I think are all the things yeah. that we are personally responsible for if we accept that anthropology. Yeah, you use that phrase in the book, and it's beautifully worded, the unbearable burden of self-belonging. Yeah. How, how is that a, a burden and not a gift? Yeah, so uh, I talk to my students a lot about this, especially their senior mm. year. So I'm teaching college students. They feel this acutely. They feel this. They tend to feel this more than um, uh, uh, prior generations, I think. Mm. That's been my impression. Yeah. And it, the way they feel this is, um, well, if you believe that your life is your responsibility, that means you've got to make something meaningful out of it. So this goes back to that mm. concept of justification. Your life is not inherently worth something. It's not inherently meaningful or purposeful. It's up to you to tell a good story. Now, you've got one shot at this. You're the only one who can work on this project. You're the only one who can define this project. You can only, you're the only one who can decide when you've arrived. Have I become the person that I need to be or I ought to be or I should, you know, whatever it might be, right? And um, the, one of the fears is that you'll pick the wrong thing. So seniors will very often be terrified. I'm going to pick the wrong career. And if I miss any time, I'm never going to get that time back. It's gone forever. Yeah. And so potentially I could be, my Christian students, will, you know, they'll talk about being outside of God's calling. And they're terrified that, you know, uh, because they want to honor God. Yeah. And now that's, and it's an important point because one of the premises of this book is that the problems I'm describing, this is not a book where I'm saying, Boy, those pagans out there, they got terrible lives. Yeah. Good thing we're Christians, huh? Um, no, what I'm trying to argue is that almost not universally, but, but for the majority of people in America, this is how we experience things. And that includes inside and outside the church. And so it can be crushing because they think, 
I have to make something of myself. I've got to accomplish something. I've got, my life is not inherently worthwhile. Now, if you ask these same students or, you know, people in your, the pew, uh, where do you find your identity? They're going to say like that. They're going to say in Christ. Okay. And so I don't think it's a problem necessarily of, of, of theology or head knowledge. I think most of them know the right answer, but it, but experientially when society is telling you, you know, you can change the world. It's your job. You've got to be the one to do these yeah. great things. Um, it's terrifying. And what, what adds to that terror is an increasing number of options available, mm. right? Yeah. So when you've got one or two things you can do with your life, one or two careers, um, you know, you, you experience some tension, but it's not too terrible. But when there are almost an infinite number of jobs and opportunities available to you in the modern world, yeah. and you think that there's one thing that God is calling you to, and for some reason, he's kind of trickster God. He doesn't want to know tell you what it is, right? So like, good luck figuring it out, because I'm not going to tell you. And if you don't pick that one, you're outside of my love and, and will. Um, mm. And that's, that's terrifying. It's crushing. You just feel burdened yeah. and weighed down and okay last last thing so so we have the the pressure to pick the right thing we have increasing number of options available which increases our anxiety and the third thing is we're hyper aware of other people and their successes because yes. of the internet right yes. so you add those th three things together and you are carrying this big boulder on your back and you know yeah it, all you all it takes is one failure and you're like i'm out i'm done i'm not playing this game yeah. anymore i'm i'm resigned i i, I the game is rigged. I'm done. I'm done. Yeah, it's almost like uh, FOMO has gone beyond just uh, social media and I see a party I'm not at. It's I was talking to uh, my son's girlfriend last night and she's been accepted to a number of colleges and it's really having trouble deciding because in her mind, each choice represents a completely different life that she yeah. will be leading from here on. And I'm trying to tell her, you can have a great life if you go here, there, wherever, you'll make friends that, you know, just pick one, whatever fits best. But for her, it's like, no, this is the first step on the path of the rest of my life. Yeah. And I have to choose right. And she's, she's, um, she's, she's just stuck, you know? Yeah, choice paralysis yeah. is a very common contemporary problem. Um, so one of the uh, uh, scholars that I use in this book is this man named uh, Elon uh, Einrenberg, this French um, sociologist historian who studies the history of depression in the contemporary world. And he says the two things that define modern, the sort of 20th, late 20th century uh, expression of depression is uh, feelings of inadequacy and inhibition. Mm -hmm. So you feel inadequate. You've got these opportunities ahead of you. You feel inadequate. And then you feel inhibited. Like, I don't, I don't want to choose because if I choose, I'm going to choose wrongly. If I try, I'm mm. going to fail. And I can't handle that because I already feel inadequate. And that, that, that experience you just described, your, your son's girlfriend, I, you know, I hear this all the time. And, and what I want to do is I want to affirm, if you accept this contemporary anthropology, you're 100% correct. Like, if, if, if your goal is to tell mm -hmm. a good story with your life, yeah, you better pick the right school. You have one shot at this mm. and you have to tell an amazing story because no one else can tell your story. And if you blow mm. it, it's done and you're done. So you better choose right. And that's what they've been told. And they've internalized yeah. this. And, and sometimes by well-meaning people, right? People who want them to be successful. So aunts, uncles, parents, church, you know, youth group pastors, pastors, you know, 
people who want them to, 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 you know, to not be timid, to try to do hard things and mean well. But sometimes I think that we can contribute to this, this feeling that, oh, this choice is everything. And so it's often very freeing yeah. when I tell students, you know, how, how do you honor God is you do something that's good and that's it. And like, you don't need to, that's it. Just pick something that's not a sinful choice, right? Don't go to a sinful, I don't know what that would be like, uh, but you know, uh, um, and then just do that. And then whatever you're doing, just honor God. And that's it. And that honors him, that pleases him. And that's all you have to do. When I have given talks about this book and told people that, inevitably, somebody in college or high school will stand up and say, are you sure? Like, mm-hmm. let me get this. <laughs> are, are you sure? That's okay? That I can just pick one thing that's, that's good and, and I just yeah. do that and do it with excellence and that's enough? I'm like, yeah. And it's just like their eyes, it's just, it's amazing because that's all they've been taught. Yeah. And I think what's so interesting is, you know, you mentioned this, this, this hyper uh, vision of like, I got to get this thing right. And so really the discernment process falls totally on the person who's trying to make that decision. And like, I, I guess I can really see how this can be really impactful for young people. I remember having a conversation with a guy in his twenties just a week ago. And he's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. You know, he's a college grad, he's kind of figuring things out. And I'm like, well, maybe God's will isn't just this like one particular thing, but maybe it's something much bigger. And it's like, it's, it's an invitation opposed to an instant. And it's just so interesting because it, I almost felt like I was having a conversation with someone who's going through a midlife crisis, but yet yes. it's happening in their twenties. Uh, yeah, or even the mid twenties crisis is real. It's a real <laughs> the thing, right? Mid twenties crisis happens. Yeah. No, I, I mean, in the book, I think I describe a perpetual midlife crisis. I mean, that's we're mm-hmm. we're constantly um, saying, feeling inadequate, uncertain. Uh, another scholar I work with is a man, fantastic name, Zygmunt Bauman, and and, and uh, Zygmunt Bauman, and and he says we live in liquid modernity. So there's this feeling that nothing is solid mm-hmm. underneath us. What am I supposed to be doing with my life? What's my purpose? Who am I? What's my identity? All those things are constantly shifting, and it and it it doesn't wait until middle age like it it you know yeah. for many people it did. Um, yeah, that's right. Well, and, and I think the challenge too is that you know we're trying to figuring out who we are is the most important thing, but yet we figure out who we are just like everybody else, and then we realize that that person that I identify as isn't actually it's not working right, and then we just go to the next identity. So. I mean, how do you talk? Yeah, what does it even look like to begin to address some of those issues too? So what I try to tell people, and and I'm not sure how helpful this is, uh, um, because I need to kind of be with someone for a while to see how this, they internalize it. But what what I've been trying to help people understand is that inherent in the idea of identity is uh, uh, the witness. So you can't have the concept of identity in a universe where there was only one thing or one being, you have to have an other that can point and say, this is the face, this is the name of this person, right? Okay. So back to that story or that, that example I mentioned earlier, where we're uh, frantically trying to craft an identity and we're constantly projecting ourselves. Sometimes it's the internet. Sometimes it's the, you know, the car I buy, the clothes I wear, you know, there are lots of ways to do this. It's not just social media, but the point is 
that we're on this treadmill. We're constantly projecting ourselves. I like to just, in the book, I describe it as, you know, we're all in just one giant warehouse yelling our names over and over, trying to get over the din so that we stand out, so that we know we exist and other people know we exist. All of that effort is an attempt to have someone outside of us say, I see you, Alan, or Orville, because that's also, <laughs> uh, I see you, Orville, I see your face, I see your name, um, and give us some affirmation. That's, that's what we want. Now, there's some irony here, because if we are our own and belong to ourselves, we're often taught to or tempted to say something like, no one else can define me. Nobody else can put me in a box. Nobody can say who I am. I am the only one who can announce to the world the authentic Orville, right? I'm the only one who can do that. But, oh, on the other hand, I need somebody out there who can affirm me. So I can't actually self-create. Now, so how do we speak into this? Well, uh, what I would say is that um, in God, we have that witness. In God, we have that witness. We have a witness who sees us always, sees us always, all times, who looks on us in love, who knows us, knows the complexity, absurdity, contradictions in our hearts, and loves us anyways. We fear being seen by others and our sins and our contradictions and the things that we can't reconcile within our own hearts being exposed. But we have a witness who sees us and loves us. Now, So what that means is when society tells us and pressures us to do this act of projection, we can say, this is nonsense. Like, it's just a lie. Like I, my identity, okay, it's going to feel liquid because everyone is telling me you've got to make a brand identity. Okay. And you've got to constantly uphold it. But I can tell myself, I can remind myself that's not true because there's one being who sees me truly and rightly and loves me anyway. Mm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It, it almost seems, though, that, like, uh, I get the idea of becoming a better version of me, and I feel like that's really rooted in my, my Christian worldview. Of, mm. I know I don't start off being great, but the more I become like Jesus, you know, the more I, sh- I am formed, it seems as though, and I think you speak to this a little bit, that I, I guess I'm wondering, are modern people trying to create an identity or are they simply trying to discover what's already there? It almost feels like people are uncovering who they are and it, it's like that identity is destiny. If I discover this within myself, mm. I, I, can't, I, I can't fight it. I can't go against it. I have to live it out. And so I, I'm wondering, yeah. yeah, how do we speak to that, um, to people who don't have that idea that you can be something other than what you are, yeah. that maybe even God made you something yeah. to be something other than what you are. Yeah, thank God. That's what I would say to my yeah. own, you know, <laughs> yeah. that I don't have to be. Yeah. So I would say that, that um, our contemporary concept of identity is incoherent for the most part. Mm, the the yeah. way we talk about it, it just doesn't make sense, which is why one of the reasons when we're talking about sexual identity within the church mm-hmm. and sort of the debates about how do we navigate that, I'm always very a little bit leery because I'm concerned that we're smuggling in ideas that are incoherent, that are not biblical, mm-hmm. and uh, well-meaning people can, can, I think, can get to conclusions that aren't, aren't actually helpful because they're smuggling these ideas in. So for example, with the idea of identity, 
there tends to be an idea of authenticity, right? So the idea being you have to look inside of yourself and find the true you and reveal that. In fact, that's some of our hero stories or contemporary hero stories is the hero mm-hmm. has a, an identity projected on them by society, by family, by community, whatever it is. And then through an act of great existential heroism, they throw off that identity and reveal their true self to the world and live in that despite the conflict and tensions that naturally arise. Mm-hmm. Um, there, uh, but there are a couple of problems. One is if, if you do any extensive self-reflection, you realize that you can't actually find an authentic self. Like your, your, your consciousness is a mess. Um, like the real Orville, I'm just going to go by Orville today on this podcast. The real Orville doesn't, you know, like he wants some things. Well, Paul is great about this, right? Like he wants some things and he doesn't want some things. Which one's the authentic? Well, it's both, but that doesn't make it. So how do you enact that, uh, that how do you live out self-actualize that incoherent identity that you discover inside yourself? And we lie to ourselves all the time. All the time we're lying to ourselves. Oh, I did this at a, because I'm benevolent. Oh, actually, I did it because I wanted to impress this person, right? Uh, and, and it's mm-hmm. at our best moments, we can see that in ourselves, but often we can't. So that's a conflict there. The other thing is, is that um, th- there are other people who view it as not looking within uh, who, who and sometimes I think they look within and they they recognize well this is incoherent I can't find a kernel of real Alan a real Orville and pull that out and just like blow that up and now I'm self actualized instead they look inside they see that chaos and they say no instead because I belong to myself I could just create whatever I want mm. right um, and just as an interesting aside some of the the um, debates that were happening before um, Obergefell about um, you know, are we are, are are people who are same sex attracted born this way or not? Uh, and some a lot of the initial arguments in the um, in the gay community were, you, you know, that they were that they were born this way, and then uh, uh, especially after that Supreme Court decision, um, there are a number of, of of people in that community that I read who who sort of acknowledged. Well, you know, some people are, they seem to be just born with this desires, um, but other people just choose them. And, and the argument they were making is we can't, <laughs> there, we have no right to say to the people who are choosing a sexual orientation, no, you're somehow inferior just because you weren't born mm-hmm. with it. And, and, and I use that example because I, I do think that, um, that society will continue to move to a place where even that idea of authenticity is sort of artificial. Mm-hmm right? Um, except in the sense of being true to your desire. So if you desire this, all right, but it's not looking inside yourself and, and seeing like, well, the real Alan would do this, the real Orville would do this. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm going to do that. So I think it's a mess is what I would say. Yeah. It's a mess. It's all the above. So yeah. for those who are attempting to speak into this, for pastors who are looking to preach to their neighborhood and to those that are showing up, what what is good news to that self-reliant, self-defined, I'm creating, I'm discovering and creating all at the same time? What what is what's good news yeah. to that? What's where's the gospel touch that identity? Yeah. So the 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 great news is um that this burden that you are carrying around 
this these feelings of inadequacy, which come directly from this idea that you have to make mm. an identity that's meaningful, these crushing feelings of inadequacy, and then later inhibition, and sometimes addiction, by the way, um, that's a lie. All of that is mm. a lie told by society. It's a false idea of what it means to be a human, and it's being pressured upon you, pushed upon you by all sorts mm. of sources. And you can say, that's not true. The fundamental mm. truth is I am known and loved by God. And that means that I can rest in that being. Just for example, the fact that we are created. Now, uh, creation is not just a moment in time, but it's a continual moment. Our very existence right now, our breath right now, is an act of grace and love by a God who chooses to preserve us. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. That's proof itself that our being, our existence is miraculous and worthwhile. So we don't have to do something to make it worthwhile. Now, a problem there is, as we know, just telling someone, hey, God loves you, your being, your existence mm -hmm. matters, doesn't, you know. And so what I would encourage people to do is to live in that way, right? And so when we act, very often our behavior shapes our desires. And I think um, this is one of those cases. If we continue to act, let's say, frantically working to make an identity or a life or a story that matters, um, we're it, with our actions, we're telling ourselves, my life is um, potentially meaningful, but potentially not. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be up to me. Um, but if we do something like, let's say, Sabbath rests, or even just taking a nap, um, napping is a miraculous thing, uh, because when you nap, you're incredibly vulnerable, right? When you nap, when you choose to nap, you're saying, yes, especially in the contemporary world, there's lots of things I ought to be doing. And in fact, everybody's telling me all the things I ought to be doing. I should be exercising. I should be doing more work, more grading if you're me. I need to finish my taxes ASAP. My kids want me to play with it. There are all sorts of things I should be doing. But I'm going to rest. And the world is going to go on, and it's going to be okay. Um, and in one way, it, it seems almost absurd that you would surrender so much and be vulnerable there, unconscious. But um, I, I do think in the practice of accepting that God is the one who provides, God is the one who loves, God is the one who grounds our being in existence, and that includes our identities, that gives us the freedom, instead of worrying about all these burdens, to say, how can I honor God today, right now, in this, this moment? Mm -hmm. And there are a million uh, different ways that we can do that. And that's, mm -hmm. that's, part, of the, that's part of the joy. Mm. So you would almost yeah. look at, look at that, that moment of discernment as these beautiful invitations from the Spirit to be inviting us into all these new potential possibilities of co-creating with Christ. So what I would say, is, yeah. So I, when I talk to students, when I talk to people, especially students, um, uh, I tell them that you know I think God gives us um, the gift of reason and discernment, and He gives us wise counselors, and we have lots of options available to us. And our task is to use some wisdom and to pick one and to not regret, because our task is not to tell the best story. Our task is not to save the world. Uh, Christ rede is redeeming all things, not you. Uh, our task is just to be faithful. So we pick something, we pick a school, we pick a job, and we honor mm -hmm. God there. And, and if it doesn't work out, then you do something else. And that's okay, too. And it's not a failure, right? Because if, if you belong to God, 
and your being is grounded in God, then you don't, it, it's okay to, to go down one path and then correct. You're not wasting time. You're not, all of that stuff doesn't count. It doesn't matter. Um, so that's what I tell them. Just pick something good. Yeah. And honor God in doing that. Yeah. Alan, a lot of pastors are listening to this on Monday morning and they are tired. And the, the title of your book, uh, you know, you're not your own. Um, I think most pastors on the continuum of narcissistic codependent, most of them really lean codependent. And so when they hear that, that they are not their own, they go, yeah, of course, I know. I know I belong to everybody else. My time is theirs. I'm, I'm killing myself yeah. uh, because of that. I'm wondering for them, and I, I love this idea of identity because one of the questions that comes up most is, is if I'm not a pastor, who am I? Mm. Like for them, identity and vocation have become so enmeshed mm. and they belong to everyone else. So like what's on the other mm. side of that? Yeah. Like there's, yeah. You know what I'm yeah. getting at? Yeah, that's right. Um, so pastors are in a unique position. I think most, uh, if not most, uh, many contemporary careers ask you, invite you to see them as all-encompassing, as giving you identity, mm -hmm. and as mm -hmm. being something that you devote yourself to. As, a, as an example, my wife mm -hmm. has two master's degrees, and she tried one in economics, one in math, and she tried to get some work doing data science part-time, and had an incredibly difficult time doing that. Why was that? Well, because uh, the companies that would hire data scientists wanted somebody who was going to devote their lives. So, so they're probably doing 60 mm -hmm. hours a week or something. She, we have kids, she wanted to do part-time, um, but that's not really an option. People want you to devote yourself to a career. Now you take that pressure and then you add in the gospel, you add in caring for people, the role of a pastor, and there can be mm. so much guilt and pressure to, to um, not to die to self, but to kill yourself, to burn yourself out doing this. And there's a difference between dying to self and burning yourself out. And that's a critical, yeah. that's a critical distinction. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I think um, pastors need rest. Pastors need mm -hmm. what I talked about earlier. They need to know that if they don't answer that call, if they don't solve that problem, if they choose to take a nap instead or do something pleasurable, they, they delight in God's creation, whether that's in uh, nature or in a work of art or a TV show or a music or whatever. They do something like that. They choose to read to their kids. Um, that prodigal act, God is the one preserving his church. It's not, it's not that pastor. And so, yeah, you do your job. But um, you know and accept your limits. And if you believe that that church and everyone in that church belongs to God, you can trust that mm -hmm. he's going to care for them, that, that mm -hmm. you don't have to be the one who saves everyone because you can't. And you know that cognitively, but you might not act that way because other people are mm -hmm. pressuring you to act that way. They're encouraging yeah. you. Hey, this is your job. Answer my phone call. Do this thing. Solve this problem. Deal with this conflict. And uh, that's, not, that's not reasonable. It's not possible, really. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, as a pastor on a, on a, on a Monday morning, I, I, that's just so encouraging to hear. I feel like so many times we, we can tend to forget that. And, um, and Bob, this is something you told me years ago. You said, I think we have to move from realizing I'm responsible for to responsible to. 
And I think mm, that's such a, yeah. a healthy, yeah. such a that's healthy a space word. to be. Um, yeah. So your bio says that you help write, produce, record. And uh, if we sure. understand correctly, uh, you were, you rapped on two hip hop albums. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Also where, what did, you know, what is your rap name? Like, do you have, is it Orville? Is it somehow worked in there? <laughs> I should. Uh, yeah, and, and where can we find those albums? Yeah, where, that's where that's a, that? that's for the detectives to figure out. Uh, I'll tell you, you know, as I said at the beginning of the show, you know, as far as vocation or calling, it's you know, my interest has been in how Christians participate in culture. And so, one part of me, so my wife and I met in a rock band. She auditioned to play bass. We got her in, and so for uh, for a long time, music has been something very interested in and um many years ago 14 15 years ago 16 years ago i was introduced to um uh, the la underground hip-hop scene by some friends who were in it and i started producing for them and then i decided decided to start rapping and uh i'm not saying it wasn't it was very good but it was uh it was a it was a lovely thing. To, it was a good thing. It was a very fun thing to do um, for a time. And um, I should have just followed that my life. I would. <laughs> now, that was my true our, calling. Our list, I'm outside of God's will now. Yeah. Our listeners can't see you, but uh, Dr. Noble, you are not just white. You are extremely white. So that. <laughs> yes. I, yes, that's true. I am. You, yeah. You got the red hair, red beard. And, and yeah. so, yeah, that was, that was quite a step outside of uh, what might be societally expected of you uh, <laughs> as producing rap albums and things. But uh yeah, so do do those still exist? I mean, I'm serious. Yeah, I'd, I'd love. They to, yeah. uh uh, they're somewhere. Yeah, they're somewhere. Okay. There's, okay. I think there there's uh some on SoundCloud. There's uh, <laughs> some you can find on. Uh, so I am a SoundCloud rapper. That that's what that means, which is a thing. Uh, and then yeah. some there's uh some on YouTube. I think some videos on YouTube. Yeah. Awesome. So is this all in the past? Do you ever do you ever spit rhymes now? You know? I don't. Yeah, yeah, I would love it's it's you know, it's like any other m- musical like you've got to be practicing constantly in order yeah, to do yeah. it. And I started grad I started my PhD program at Baylor and then all my musical mm. efforts just dropped away cuz took all my yeah. time, which is fine. But I yeah. miss it. Well, we would ask you to rap a benediction for our pastors, <laughs> but I think we will honor the fact that you have you have told us that you are not in up. practice. That's right. I hung up that mantle. That so, and you're outside of God's will, but we'll still take, <laughs> we'll still take the benediction. Right. Uh, but yeah, would you mind leaving pastors with the yeah. benediction today? Yeah, I'm just going to go with the best, the my favorite one. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode of the Monday Morning Pastor podcast today. Could you do us two favors? Number one, would you leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods? If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd appreciate if you could help us to spread the word. And number two, would you share this episode with two other pastors or leaders who you think would benefit from MMP? We would be deeply grateful if you could help us. Thanks in advance, and thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.